just west of the Ward Place gate from San Diego, California. He is Mike Dizzy Deziri, class of 2001. I am Tommy Chilkoharski, class of 1997, and we are Left Coast Pirates. Good afternoon, Michael. How are you doing today? It's a tough one, Tommy. Uh, you know, double overtime loss, uh, that one hurt. So I, I, I'm not coming here with a lot of uh, gusto and emotion today. I, I'm dejected. I, I get it. There's probably a lot of fans out there that are really disappointed at this moment. So let, let's just get into it. I, I know how you feel, and I'm having a hard time getting worked up about it at this point in the season. This really hasn't even been a roller coaster ride of a season. The longer we've gone into it, the worse we've played, and we're definitely trending in the wrong direction at this point. I don't have the answers. Uh, right now, we are what we are. We're a team that's going through transition. Maybe we are what we were supposed to be at the beginning of the season. We were a team projected to be eighth in the Big East, a young team. The Big Four were gone, a lot of question marks. And their performance in the non-conference just set the bar maybe unrealistically a little bit too high. It happens. We we got passionate. We got into it. I haven't given up hope. I know you're always picking on me. Last night, I'm at a wedding trying to follow the game. I'm watching on the, the DV phone app, and my wife says to me, she goes, the minute we get to this wedding, that thing gets shut off, or I'm turning right back around, and we're not going to this thing. Because there I am as they're saying their vows, looking to see if Powell's going to hit a big shot and save our season. I- I'm in. I get it. But... It, this one hurts. I get it, Mike. I agree. Coming into this season, we were looking at the rebuild, and we were kind of prepping ourselves for a potentially tough season. The out-of-conference schedule definitely gave us some hope about what this team could be, but as the Big East schedule reared its ugly head, we've gone and we've regressed. And now we're in desperation mode, Mike. And why? Because we lost a tough one yesterday in double overtime to Georgetown. It was a good game. I mean, the Hall jumped out. To their biggest lead, 28-20. to Georgetown only scores one point in a seven-minute stretch. Uh, the Pirates went on a 9-1 to run during that span. They held Gove into 0-7 from the field in the first half. I felt like they missed an opportunity to have a bigger lead. Georgetown kind of comes out of the gate and responds, reclaims the lead at 44-39 to early in the second half. Basically built off of a 15-5 to run that saw the Hall score only two made field goals over a six-minute and 30 Uh, second stretch the game after that was back and forth for the rest of the way i had uh, eight ties 13 lead changes had a big basket by nz to force overtime roden had a big basket to force double overtime it was a good game powell tried to step up and save the team and put him on his back 35 points 10 of 15 from inside the arc but he struggled from three only four 12 sandro had a decent game 14 points 11 boards but he struggled 0 for 5 from 3, also had 3 turnovers, looked a little rattled. The team from 3 was 5 of 29 for 17%. There was a small bright spot. I, I love what Jad Roden brought to the table. He had 9 points, 9 rebounds, a little bit of everything. Uh, it was just a tough game to lose at that time of the season to kind of you know lose a 77-71 setback on the road. There's a lot of things we could take away out of this game, Mike. I, I think the biggest is what coach Willard tried to accomplish. Now you probably call it something like mad scientist. I'm going to look at it as more desperation mode, but we changed the starting lineup to really big extents. We've seen Gill start over Enzi in the past. And it was probably a good choice with Govan being the dominant center. He is for Georgetown, but then I can't believe he had the onions to start Shavar over Q. This isn't saying that Q's play in the recent games have made us confident in what he could bring to the table, but he actually started Shavar. I didn't think he was going to go through with it. I thought it was a knee-jerk reaction slash comment in the postgame. It was warranted. Q had two really rough back-to-back games that we kind of documented and went over. I thought that after a week off, he was going to kind of backtrack and say, you know what, at the end of the day, Q is still our best guy at the point guard, and we're going to ride with the you know, the five that got us here or our best players that got us here. So I, I was shocked. I was really surprised when Savar took the court to start at point guard. The big point here is he is not a point guard, and the offense stalled at the beginning of that game. 
basically all we had going was Powell going crazy, and he went crazy to start that game. But nobody else on the team got involved. It was totally Shabar would bring the ball up down court. He would stop somewhere about center court, pass it off to Powell, and and that was that. That's not a point guard. That's because he doesn't have the skill set to run the point guard in the offensive sets that Willard wants to run. Willard likes to run a lot of high ball screen pick and roll. That's not Shavar's thing. He he was very hesitant trying to initiate that type of offense, and it showed. He brought the ball across half court, like you said. He was looking to pass off. They were running a lot of uh, double screens for Powell, where Shavar was facilitating off of that. But it wasn't the traditional point guard set the table uh, that Willard normally implements. So for what it was trying to accomplish, which was to change the tone offensively, I don't think it accomplished that. I had some other issues, though, with the starting lineup and what we decided to do defensively. So when Gill comes into the game and you've watched him play so far this year, when has he flourished, in man-to-man or in zone? He's better off when he's sitting back in zone because he, he doesn't have that footwork to go follow the smaller guys i also think he kind of gets lost in the man-to-man the, the the switches that we like to play on defense well he hasn't played a whole lot of big time college basketball so it's understandable you put him back into the zone it kind of gives him a comfort zone if you will and he can do what he does best and that's change shots so so that's what was confusing we came out in a man-to-man and the first two or three trips down the floor georgetown immediately put gill and shavar into a pick and roll combo and true to form we switched on it now all of a sudden you got a kino on gill that was a mismatch in, like for hell right there and they got whatever they, they wanted we take gill out and this is crazy then we go to zone. I, I was confused. You know, as bad as the announcing was, and we'll get into that later, even Bob Wenzel was wondering what was going on. And he made a comment at first media saying, okay, now they're putting the real starters back in. Well, he even gave a prelude. He's like, it's time, and he specifically highlighted, time to get Gill and Shavar out of the game because they are making numerous mistakes on the defensive end. He didn't even talk about the offensive inefficiencies of what they were bringing to the table. Once again, I don't think Wenzel's called any of our games this year, and he immediately went to that observation. So it shouldn't have been rocket science to you know realize that that was probably not the right button to push but that's what coach wanted to do so and that's what we were trying to get was better play at the point guard and if you look at the game as a whole we did not get that shavar 21 minutes over four from the field they weren't even running out on him they were letting him shoot it daring him to shoot it two assists one on a crazy kale layup that i yes okay technically as the rule book states that's an assist Quincy McKnight had another tough game, 31 minutes, one for seven from the field, did have five assists, but he also had four turnovers, and some of them were just plain bad toward the end of regulation. Look, I'd like to see more play from Nelson. He only got two minutes. I think at this point, the, no pun intended, but the point guard position is a real question mark for this team. There are positives, Mike. We did a pretty good job of go on Govan in the first half, we, but we couldn't take advantage of it. Mike, if I told you we were going to hold them 1-11 to shooting to start the game, you would think we'd be up double digits, no? You would have expected a repeat of where we were at in the first game, in control from the start to finish. So, you know what? He was bound to start kind of clicking and getting his own, and he got deep in the post, and the second half of that game, He was 6 of 10, including the overtime session, finished with 21 points, 12 rebounds, got to the line. He completely changed that game, and it's not surprising. Like, it was overdue. So the fact that we didn't build enough of a cushion on the road while he was struggling, shame on us, and that's essentially why they were in that rock fight back and forth down to the, the final seconds. Now, we did get a decent game out of Sandro. Most of that came in the second half. Offensively, he was struggling in the first half. He did board. He did play pretty good defense. 
but nobody else really stepped up. I, and I think part of that is there was no flow to us offensively. It was either Miles going crazy, and he looked beautiful, especially attacking the rim. But there wasn't a whole lot other than that. So here's an opportunity to talk about what everybody seems to want to talk about, whether he plays two minutes, ten minutes. We don't have answers for what's really going on with Thompson, but a lot of people have asked that he get more minutes coming down the stretch here relative to all these changes we were expecting that you know Willard was going to try to push with the, with the lineup. Thompson got five minutes. I've been a big supporter of him recently. He's been taking quality shots. He's been staying more you know, below the three-point line. He's been aggressive on the boards offensively and defensively and here he goes he regressed again in my opinion he took four bad shots between the first half and the second half also had a turnover and every time he touched the ball you tell me it did not look like he was willing to pass I'm not so much worried about willing to pass as much as yes those shots were awful that three he shouldn't be doing a catch and shoot like that I mean it was just bad and I've been I, I'm kind of a Torian Thompson apologist you know that Mike I I want the kid to do well I, I you know there's something there that we can gain from it and we've seen him play well in in big games or at least a couple big games so my intention here is not to write the kid off for the rest of the season or his career with Seton Hall but the expectations for what he can do or provide to change the tailspin that we're in right now, I don't think that's a fair expectation. At this point, he's an end-of-the-bench rotation type player. You might have a good game. You might have what we had yesterday. Willard's got to put him in to kind of see what you're going to get on that given night. And if it's positive, I think he needs to ride it. And if not, Thompson's going to get two to five minutes, and it is what it is. You know, I did misspeak. We did get a little bit of production out of a really unlikely place. Jared Roden came to play, Mike. He has a lot of potential. I'm frustrated because I'm seeing freshmen on other teams at this point in the year have kind of their developmental games out of the way. And they're starting to either hit their stride and contribute, or sometimes you hit that freshman wall. It feels like we're just starting to scratch the surface with Jared and we're 28 games in the kid doesn't have a refined three point shot at this point, but he's aggressive going to the basket. He can grab you an offensive board. He gives you hustle. I don't know if he's getting the right defensive matchups. He's getting placed on bigger fours. He's getting placed on, you know, faster two guards He's going to have his role, and he's going to find his, his, his mix. Last night was a prelude to what he might be as he develops. It was exciting to watch. Now, we've said all season long, Roden seems to have a nose for the ball. He seems to get his hand on it, whether it's a deflection or a big rebound. So it was nice seeing it, but he, he is not ready for prime time. Well, that's obvious because the, the turning point of the game, well, there could have been a lot of turning points, but it's 71-71. He grabs a tough defensive rebound in traffic. He gets fouled. Everybody's in the double bonus at this point of double overtime. He goes to the line two minutes to go in the game. If he hits both free throws there, wow, the, the pressure and onus is going to be on Georgetown to have to come up with a big possession. Otherwise, we might have a chance to ice that game by scoring another bucket or two. And he goes to the line and bricks both free throws, and we lost all the momentum. It's a tough spot to put the kid in, and you're right. He, he's not ready for it yet. He looked like he rushed those shots. Totally. It, you know, right after the foul, Miles Powell went up to him. I think he was trying to, you know, bring him down. He didn't seem to be in rhythm. He seemed to go up there, dribble the ball a couple times, and just chuck. It's a growing pain situation. You're you're on the road. That's a really tough situation to hit those free throws. I'm not going to beat the kid up, but – once again, the more experience you get on the court, the more prepared you are in those situations. And we have our bench right now that truly just doesn't know what their role is. One day they get 15, 20 minutes. The next day they get two. So to be thrust in these situations and put all the pressure for them to step up and have to kind of, you know, shoulder the burden of winning a game in a tough spot on the road, you're going to get mixed results. 
and, and I'll take the good with the bad with them because I like seeing young players stepping up, giving some positive contributions. That drive to the basket and almost dunk, it kind of rolled in there. That was great. That's a big move for him. But then at the end of double overtime, Miles coming down with the ball. Everybody is playing up because they're going to guard him the minute he gets past half court. He zips a pass down low to a wide open Roden and he fumbles it. It is what it is with him. He's, you're going to get those growing pains. I like what I saw, though. I, like I said, I, I don't want to evaluate that specific moment. I know that was the uh, the final nail in the coffin for the result of the game. Even if he makes that bucket, they're down by two with like 10 to play. Yeah, there's a shot. You're going to foul. Maybe they miss one out of two, and you come back and hit, th- hit another three to send it to triple overtime. I- I'm not blaming the loss on Roden at this point. No, not at all. And Mike, I- I'll say this. You were probably luckier than me because you were watching the game at the wedding. It probably had no volume because you did not have to hear the awful announcing that the CBS broadcast team brought to that game. I mean, it made me miss the days of Donnie Marshall calling our games and Fox Sports. Friend of the Left Coast Pirates, Alan Denton, actually said on Twitter that we could probably do an hour just on dumb things that the announcers said. Well, true, true to the podcast, I did wake up and go back and watch the game on the DVR. And true to form, there was uh, no shortage of uh, content for this segment of the podcast. We'll, we'll break it down to just a couple for uh, sake of time. But the play-by-play guy was John Sadak. And he credited the first block of the game, which was clearly Gill, to Sandro. And then there was a segment early on where he goes, uh, there are some unlikely heroes early in this game. And the score was only 14 to 13. Heroes? Yeah, so, so a guy off the bench scores a bucket and we're only calling him a hero? But Bob Wenzel made him look like a professional because Bob Wenzel was horrible. To start off, okay, maybe you mush mouth the first play of the game where you're already misnaming players. He said Kale was 7-2. That was just crazy. He seemed to forget how to do math because he started telling us how many blocks that Gill came into the game with, which was 24. Then he tells you that he got two more, so that's 28 now, right? And then how do you butcher the names of famous Hoyas? So he he got he got Patrick Ewing out of his mouth. He got Alonzo Mourning out of his mouth. And then somehow he took Dikembe Mutombo and turned it into Dikumbo. And he actually corrected himself twice on that one, Mike. It, it was a rough day for Bob. Uh, him and... Uh, John could not handle Sandro's last name. And they, they went to the, uh, the well numerous times butchering Mamu Kelishvili, and it was nowhere close to that in any of the attempts. You know what? It, it just wasn't a good day for the booth. It, it is what it is. No, but there were some highlights coming out of that, kind of a whoa, did you see that moment. I'm going to start with Gill's first block. I mean, yes, he is legit 7-2. I get it. I've heard it enough on the broadcasts. But it still impresses me with how high he gets up. It's it's just a sight to see. He, he did it later in the first half. He kind of challenged a jump shot just inside the three-point line and sent it back as well. The, the guy's got length. He really does change the game when he can play under control. But I, you know what? I'm going to step away and, and, and not highlight Gill's blocks for the, uh, for, for the moment this week because I thought this was a, whoa, did you see that, in addition to a major turning point in, in the game. So do you remember when McKnight hits the bucket to put us up by four? I believe the score was 55-51 at that moment. And it felt like with four minutes to go, we might pull this one out. And he comes back down the court and gets in defensive position. And in true Duke Wojo form, he slaps the logo right there. And the crowd let him hear it with the jeers and the oohs and the ahs of, wow, you had the courage to do that in our home arena while you're on the road four minutes to go and then what happened afterwards I-, I thought changed the turning point of the game because Akinjo drives on him hits a bucket and he took offense to the fact that he slapped the floor because he gets right up in his face before the inbounds pass could have gotten a tee instead gets in the defensive position and slaps the floor right back at him and ignites the Georgetown crowd 
you know, normally I like things of that nature. I loved the angel double bicep after a big offensive rebound and put back. This probably wasn't the best time to do it. I it, it just seems like you got to know your place. It ignited an 8 to 2 run, so all of a sudden you're you're up 4, you got a chance to maybe ice the game and all of a sudden the crowd's right back into it. They're they're down 2 and they had to fight back to send it to overtime. It just wasn't heady basketball, if you ask me. If, if we were at home, I, I get it. You kind of use the crowd to your advantage. So that was like a, whoa, did you see that? Like, why did you do that? Well, with that loss, now we're in desperation mode because we basically need to win two games if we even have a chance in your mind. I think the day is done of making the tourney and we've got the most difficult home games coming up with the two top teams in the conference. I don't know how the hole digs himself out of this hole. I really don't. We've said it all along. They got to get to nine and nine. So now they have no other option. You got to win the last two. And if you're asking me to look ahead and give a preview to Nova and Marquette, I, I don't know where to start, but I think we might have somebody who's going to join us that just might. He was the face and voice of the Pirate Sports Network. He also spent some time at WSOU 89.5. He's the on-air talent for the Big East Digital Network and Fox Sports Network. Additionally, he hosts a men's weekly basketball show named The Shootaround, which features behind-the-scenes in-depth stories from the Big East. Adding to this impressive list of accomplishments, he was recognized as Sportscaster to Watch in 2018 by the Sportscaster Talent Agency of America. Let's welcome John Fant to the Left Coast Pirates Live. John, how are you? I'm doing well, guys. Best time of the year. What a week on deck for the Hall Big East Tournament looming. Does not get better than this time of year, and great to be joining Left Coast Pirates for the first time. So where are you at today, Johnny? I'm in Omaha, in Nebraska. Just wrapped up a women's basketball game. I have been doing the Fox Sports women's packets throughout the season and just called a tight one between Creighton and DePaul. Blue Demons came out on top. Uh, but Big East women's, like the men's side, has quite the log jam in the middle and uh, lots of – uh, it's a parody, which isn't necessarily always a good thing in terms of NCAA tournament hopes, but it sure is fun to watch. John, you are like the hardest working man in professional sports right now. You are everywhere. You tweet all the time. It's amazing. How has your experience been working for Fox in the Big East so far? It's been awesome, and it really started at Seton Hall. It's the people on Seton Hall's campus that then you see really uh, extend to the entire conference. And what's so special about my role is to be able to connect with the 10 schools, you know, through the Big East digital side. And it's all about relationships. That's extended to uh, my Fox Sports deal. And when you have those relationships, you get trusted to do uh, telecasts because you can speak on a team. Um, just due to having the relationship with coaches and players, you're in touch with them. And what I can say about the Big East specifically, uh, which is where I started my career, is across the board, and I mean this, we're not talking about dealing with any jerks or any people that are going to shove you off. Uh, this is a first-class league that truly has uh, 10 connected schools because they all have a common vision, and that's through basketball. So basketball is their priority. And to be able to create relationships with those coaches, those players, uh, those administrators, it's, it's been really fun to jump into this this year and uh, take a deep dive on Fox Sports, which Fox does a great job of covering the Big East. I don't think people realize the Big East would not get anywhere near the same level of exposure uh, just in terms of games and in terms of TV windows. Uh, at an ESPN or another network, and that's where uh, Fox has been very advantageous for the conference. The Big East is not what it is without the Fox footprint. Yeah, I totally agree. Being out here in San Diego, we probably get a chance to see every game on the on the schedule. That wouldn't have been the case uh, when they were with ESPN. A lot of ESPN Plus type of coverage when I was trying to follow them when I first moved out here. So I, I totally get it. That's right. That's right. Now Left Coast Pirates is taking off. <laughs> well, you, you took off, but you took off kind of starting at Seton Hall on their PSN network. So how did that job prepare you for what you're doing now? It prepared me in a big way because with the Pirate Sports Network, I did a bunch of different things. I was on camera, but I shot my own work. 
um, I shot other people's work, uh, meaning I was a cameraman. I would produce broadcasts. So, you know, I'd be in charge of the behind the scenes aspect of building the elements for a broadcast, whether it be graphics or storylines for our talent. So what Seton Hall allowed me to do was it allowed me to see a production from all sides. So now as talent, I know what a produ- producer is looking for. I know what a cameraman is looking for. And you're only as good as your production team. So that, that's what Seton Hall helped me to learn. I did a couple internships, Westwood One Radio, the home of the NCAA tournament, the Olympics, uh, National Football League. On top of that, I did an internship with CNBC, kind of went out of my uh, scope and did some finance news, which was fun. And then I also did Fox Sports. I did a summer there in Los Angeles where I was with them helping their production of the Copa America tournament in men's soccer and uh, baseball. Did a ton of baseball with them on their MLB whip around show, worked with Frank Thomas, Pete Rose, Kevin Burkhardt. It was really fun to be with those guys and learn from them. So through Seton Hall's relationships, I got a chance to learn what TV is like from all aspects. Well, John, everyone knows that you're Seton Hall True Blue, but you've got to be a little objective when you're working Big East games. How difficult is that when your alma mater is in the conference that you're covering? It is a line to straddle. The toughest thing about it is, guys, not necessarily for me, because when I'm doing a game, I, I do just take that emotion out of it that I have for my alma mater. And I, I try to be right down the middle. What the tougher thing is, is when you're doing a game and you're just, for me, I'm 23 years of age and with media relations, people with opposing coaches, you know, they, they see that I went to Seton hall and, and they're obviously tipped off that, that look, okay, he's a Seton hall grad. Maybe he's got a closer relationship with some of their people. So y- you want to make sure that they trust you that they trust you as equal uh, as, as a Seton Hall would if you were to do that type of a game. Um, I could tell you right now, I think big picture. So in my first year of my Fox deal, I have not done a Seton Hall game, a game that Seton Hall has been involved in because I am very uh, close removed from the university. It's only been just a year and a half. So I don't just want to be known as, as a Seton Hall guy. I take a lot of pride in my university, uh, the, the school I attended, but, Career-wise, uh, I want to continue to, to do Seton Hall proud and to make strides in that. So it, it's very important to me that uh, I'm down the middle because that, that's how it should be. That's how it should be. Ian Eagle's one of the greats at this. He, he went to Syracuse, but he'll do a Syracuse game, and you would never know that he went there. So it's, it's all about having a professionalism and a maturity. Well, we assume that even though you remove the emotion from the equation, you still follow the team pretty closely. So the next couple of questions, we want to really dive into this, you know, up and down season the Pirates have had and really get your insight as we kind of go down some of these questions. Uh, so first off, uh, as most people have been saying, it's a roller coaster, a lot of ups and downs this year. And in a lot of the post game, Willard has attributed that to the schedule challenges the team has faced. Do you agree? And if not, what do you think the largest contributing factor is? Well, I think that the largest contributing factor is that they just have so many question marks in their supporting cast. I think Seton Hall has showed us in the last month, month and a half, that maybe they they are what the coaches thought they were in the preseason, that there's truth to that, to them getting picked eighth. Because if you look at their roster completely, I don't think you'd say it's a top five roster uh, in the Big East. I think you'd say it's somewhere in the back half. They have a transcendent player. They have a player who can change the game, but it, you can't go one-on-five and make the NCAA tournament. Miles Paul's done everything he can, uh, but it, he, he can't do it all. In terms of the schedule, I give Seton Hall a lot of credit for challenging themselves in the non-conference. It is the sole reason why they are on the bubble still, because they have those wins over Kentucky and Maryland, and they can be dependent. You don't want to be dependent, but they could be dependent on other teams And if you look at the bubble, Arizona State, they get blown out by Oregon. St. Mary's, they lost to Santa Clara. They're now out. Clemson loses to North Carolina, misses on a chance to capitalize. Clemson has not beaten anyone. Those are the types of teams there that Seton Hall is competing with, but they haven't found a way to separate themselves much. Now, Seton Hall, you know, they they need to get at least one. Uh, I know a lot of people think two. I still think something could happen in the Big East tournament. But in terms of the schedule complaints, look – I think that there are some things that the conference has to look at collectively with the future of their schedule, because I see some quirks and some weird things across the board. At the end of the day, guys, you play nine home games and nine road games. So if you're going to complain about the conference schedule, look, everybody's got to go through the grind. 
Seton Hall did not have one stretch this year where they had to play three straight Big East road games. That's big. That's big. They didn't have to play a three-game uh, road stand, and other teams did. So I'm not going to sit here and, and rip the conference schedule because you have to play nine home, nine away. Maybe it's the after effects of a non-conference schedule that was very difficult. But you know what? You're also not in this position if you don't have that non-conference schedule. So it's twofold. Uh, I, I think that, that look, I get the excuses. Um, I understand where Coach Willard's coming from. And it's not to say that, you know, I just outright disagree. I just, I'll say this, you play nine home, nine road. Look, I I also agree that he's made some good points. The fact that sometimes you play the same team within a two week turnaround time, you don't get to kind of see that same team as they go through their growth or maybe some injury challenges. We face DePaul in an eight day window. We face Creighton in an eight day window. So he has had some valid points relative to the schedule, but I agree at the end of the day, it should even out playing nine home and nine away. So you make some good points there. Let's get one thing straight. Kevin Willard's done a very good job with this team. And I know expectations changed in December. You guys have brought this up on the podcast. I will, I will sit here right now and say, look, uh, Romaro Gill came up with some big time plays early in that Georgetown game. Some, some huge blocks on top of that. Shavar Reynolds uh, was active and has been active for this team. Quincy McKnight has not played well as of late. So I get why he did not start for Seton Hall on Saturday. I get the change there. I think that Kevin Willard has done a good job. Just two weeks ago, I can tell you, multiple people told me that they would have voted for him for Big East Coach of the Year. You have to understand, and I don't think people get this, this is one of the best eras of Seton Hall basketball history. And you could say to me, well, John, they've underperformed. And I would say, look, some of that, okay, might be warranted. Last year, they they did not win more than a tournament game, and that team could have very well gone to the Sweet 16. But look at the standards. You know, 1989 is a one-year thing. You never know when you're going to get back, and it stinks. It stinks that it didn't happen. That said, that's not this program standard. It's not. It, It can't be. Not in the current age of college basketball. This, this program, with what they have, with where they're positioned, the standard is to make NCAA tournaments. They are on track to make one with a team that is not, that on paper, you would say would not make the NCAA tournament. At the end of the day, credit still goes to the coach until further notice. So, John, you mentioned the supporting cast not being as strong as possible. What boggles my mind is the Torian Thompson situation. He had a outstanding freshman year with Syracuse he transferred he's basically had two years or a year and a half with us in our program but things haven't worked out any idea of why he hasn't been able to hit his stride I have no idea I really don't I think it's it's a tough thing that the coaching staff has had to deal with because uh, I think it's um, heavily mental because Torian's showed that he has the talent that he has the skill set to be something interesting it's hard to believe guys how key of a role torian thompson played in the biggest win of the season the kentucky win that was his best game may go down as his best game as a pirate he had 13 points five for eight from the field made big plays had the pass to miles kale on the three he, he was just huge in every way shape and form so uh, it's amazing because the irony is he hasn't not done much since i don't have an answer for it i i don't because i don't i don't know and I don't know if anyone does know. So it's, it's really tough. They're trying to give him chances, but he's, he's harming them more than he's benefiting them. Sticking with the depth of the team, I mean, Q surprisingly got off to a great start, but the court of public opinion in the last like three games has drastically changed. What is the short-term and long-term solution at point guard right now? Well, the long-term solution is still Anthony Nelson. And I think Kevin Willard, thought that from the get-go in the preseason he really liked Nelson and what he was doing and I still think that that's going to hold to be true Willard's best trait is player development it's what people don't see in the individual sessions, and it's why his players love him he's really good at developing them individually so that's a plus uh, the short-term solution it's still got to be Quincy McKnight having said this I, I don't know late in the game if you're going to see McKnight continue to bring the ball up the floor I mean, I'd rather take my chances with Miles Paul bringing up the floor and hoisting a prayer than McKnight late in the game lately because he, he just can't value the ball. Seton Hall in the last three minutes of regulation uh, on Saturday against Georgetown, 
the last three or four minutes, they had two turnovers. Georgetown had none. Uh, it's only two turnovers, but they were both incredibly costly. And Georgetown was not scoring in the half court. So when you turn the ball over, you give those freshman guards a chance to run. And, you know, at the end of the day, you try to bridge things with transfers. And they're transfers for a reason. And I mean that in the nicest way is, is that Torian, uh, Quincy McKnight was not he- heavily recruited maybe for reasons like what we've seen lately. He's a talented guard, but I think he's come down back down to earth and they've got to figure out a way for, for him to get going or else it, it, Miles Powell has to carry the ball handling load too. And that's not what you want, but it's going to give you a better chance to not turn the ball over late than what your current structure is. Let me throw this up there. I said this on our last podcast. I, I love Q. We feel like we're picking on him right now. He feels like he is better suited for that Derek Gordon, six-man off the bench, high energy on defense, and the occasional offensive outburst. I mean, if we had the right point guard in place, I think Q would flourish in our system. Yes, he would flourish. And that's not to say he hasn't flourished at times this year. Look at the first game against Georgetown. He had nine assists in that game. He was flourishing in that game. There's been flashes, but he's gone through those lulls too. It's been inconsistent. It also comes down, sometimes we look at it and you're only as good sometimes as the shot makers you have. The fact of the matter is this. You're not going to be a great point guard if you don't have some shot makers alongside you. And Seton Hall has one shot maker. It's Miles Powell. They have one playmaker. It's Miles Powell. When you only have one of those, it's tough to be a really good point guard because you're not going to get credit for much with, with guys not taking good shots or just not making shots. So Seton Hall stuck offensively as a result. There's just, there's no rhyme or reason at times to their rhythm. So that's part of the reason as well with Quincy McKnight, because sometimes it's the players around them. And, and at times this season, it's, it's a complete team thing at times this season. This team plays their tails off. I mean, there's not a question of them playing hard. There's not a question of their chemistry. I can tell you right now, this team's got excellent chemistry. Um, That said, the players around McKnight, the sophomores primarily, they come and go. They're hot and cold. You don't know what you're going to get on any given night. Now, John, it didn't happen yesterday, but one of the more perplexing things about this team is how they keep finding themselves down double digits more often than not during conference play. What are your thoughts that why this keeps on happening and how do you think they can go about in stopping it? It's offensive inconsistencies. It's it's who they are. How could they stop it? Well, guys, I think that post touches are really important. I was a little bit surprised to see how little Michael Enzi produced against Georgetown on Saturday, considering he had 18 points against them the first time around. Mike Enzi, he has become a really strong finisher for this Seton Hall team. He's involved in that area. Like when he catches it deep in the post, I don't know about you guys, but I think the ball's going to go into the hoop the way that he's played this year. I think it's going to go in. And that started back in the wooden legacy. He couldn't miss. He couldn't miss in that run of that tournament title. So I think post touches are important. You've got to get the ball inside. What's Seton Hall take against Georgetown? I don't have the box score in front of me, but threes. I think they took 29 yeah, threes. That's, that's, that's shocking. You know, you're, you're facing a Georgetown team that's backcourt oriented, and people may say, oh, John, Goban beat us. But let me say this. At the end of the day for Georgetown, they're going to go as those freshman guards take them. Jesse Goban's a really good player, and he exploited a matchup down the stretch in that game, but Georgetown's not in the game without their freshman guards. They're not in the game without Akinjo stirring the drink. James Akinjo is the present and future of that program, and he dictated the game, and they did a nice job of keeping Seton Hall from getting the ball inside. So for Seton Hall, they got to get the ball inside. Their best possessions on Saturday were Miles Powell catching at the top of the key and ripping down the right lane and getting the ball in the basket, catching a Georgetown post player off guard defensively, and then finishing. So for Seton Hall, they've got to get the ball inside. They're not a three-point shooting team. They have to get away from that. Now, you mentioned Mike Enzi, John. Maybe it was a little pie in the sky for me, but I thought Anthony Nelson and him were going to be best friends on the court. I could have, I, I just saw in my mind's eye them running the pick and roll all day long and Mike just finishing it from a nice pass from Nelson. I think you've been spending a little bit too much time on the beach. <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> you've been looking out of the sunset a little bit too much. <laughs> I, but I get Tom's point. It's like, uh, and this once again, this is not a knock on cue. It, it just seems from the eye test that Nelson's a little bit smoother in his pick and roll transition. He, he, he comes off the corner harder. He's got his head up looking to pass. 
like I said, not a knock on cue, but just not his strength. He's attacking the basket downhill, looking to score. And I think we lose some of the ball movement from going inside out on our pick and roll versus what we get with Nelson. It's a good point. Here's the tough thing. We've gotten such a small sample size of Nelson lately because he's a freshman they're worried about him defensively. And your counter to that could be, well, we need some offense, though. We need somebody to deliver offensively. You'll sacrifice some. Well, you still got to be able to guard in the Big East. You still got to have a dog. Quincy McKnight's a dog. He's a, he's a tough competitor. Uh, I don't think – I'm not going to harp on him too much because I think that – look, I think he is what he is. I think he's playing out for what he is. He, he did – he's killed them in some areas. But there's other players who have killed Seton Hall in some areas. It's a – it's a whole team thing. I th- I just think that this Seton Hall team, the expectations were changed, but this team is what it is. And I still think you're fortunate to be on the bubble. I still think a one-in-one week gives you a puncher's chance to make the tournament. Because think about this. Just think about this for a moment. If Seton Hall goes one-in-one this week, that then for them would be a fifth quadrant one win. And then at the Big East tournament, the NCAA tournament selection committee considers when St. John's is playing – a Big East tournament game, that constitutes as a St. John's home game. I learned this from Jerry Palm of the CBS Sports Bracketologist. So if Seton Hall were to play St. John, that would be a quadrant one game, uh, basically a road game. That's what it's constituted as. Maybe the crowd distribution wouldn't be like that because it's the Big East tournament. But an interesting note, and if the Hall wins, you know, a 4-5, a 3-6 game, we'll see how it all shakes out. And they've got that win, and they've got a, another Quadrant 1 win over Marquette or Villanova. I still think it's tough for the committee to leave them out. I still think the committee very well puts them in Dayton solely because they own two golden non-conference wins. And if you look across the board, the teams with them on the bubble, Georgetown's non-conference schedule is all kinds of bad. Clemson didn't beat anyone in their non-conference. Uh, NC State, what have they done? So th- there's other teams with them. Minnesota is another one. Seton Hall has gems. It was going to take a lot for them to not make an NCAA tournament. They, just, they have to get one this week. If they get two, then they're lost. But I still think that one could be enough, and uh, you, you just never know. For, again, for them, I think an accomplishment. This team on paper, if they make the NCAA tournament, they're going to bring a lot of people back next year. They only lose NZ. Next year, Seton Hall has a chance to be a top 25 team. I completely agree with you with the softness of the bubble. I follow it pretty closely, and the teams that you highlighted absolutely are on the softer side from what I've seen in the past. It's an interesting take that you believe 8 and 10 still has a shot because right now the mindset from most people is they have to be at 9 and 9. Uh, 8 and 10 is not going to get it done. So my first question as we kind of move into the Marquette Nova week is, this was a tough game for a young team, as you highlighted. Very emotional to lose a double overtime game on the road where there were opportunities to kind of steal the win. How does this team kind of come back emotionally and regroup in order to kind of put themselves in a position to have a successful week, whether it's one-on-one or having to win both? Well, it all starts with valuing the basketball. And I, I don't mean to beat a dead horse, but if Seton Hall doesn't value the ball, you're facing the top two defensive teams in the Big East. That's what people are forgetting with Marquette. Marquette just lost to Creighton. Creighton did a nice job valuing the ball and for, forcing Marquette into hero ball. Marcus Howard into hero ball. Uh, I think you, you got to value the basketball. I think Seton Hall matches up somewhat well with both teams. And they got blown out by Villanova. But Villanova, Villanova hasn't found offense. They really haven't. Uh, but for Seton Hall, they've, they've got to find some sort of a rhythm on the offensive end of the floor. And I think that goes back to Miles Kale. Kale can't be what he was at Georgetown. He gave Seton Hall nothing. So he has to get going. They, they need him to be the sidekick to Miles Powell in the backcourt because he's got to score the ball and take some pressure off Powell. It could be a three. It could be a couple of threes. It could be a slash to the rim, something. We have not seen those two click in a game together very much this season. Even the Kentucky win, Kale had a little stretch. Then Powell had his stretch. We didn't see them coexist. So I think for Seton Hall to have a good week at some point, Miles Kale and Miles Powell have to coexist. Coming into the first game, Marquette, Marcus Howard has had a spectacular season. How do you think the team can contain him from going crazy against us? Well, here's the thing about that is the, the formula to beat Marquette is to make sure that the complementary cast does not start to get going from beyond the arc. When you let Sam Hauser, 
Sakar Annam, when you let Joey Hauser get going. I mean, today, Marcus Howard reeled something like 21 straight points off against Creighton, and look who won the game. It was Creighton against Marquette. You, Mar- Marcus Howard, you don't want to just let him get his, but if you make him work, he'll get his. You've got to cut off the passing lanes from those other Golden Eagles because Marquette has become a top 10 team because they're more complete offensively. And on the defensive end, they have bought into Steve Wojciechowski's way that he played at Duke. They've defended much better. So what I look at with Marquette is you actually, you don't want to give Marcus Howard open looks, but you're okay if Marcus Howard does score the ball well if you do not let Sam Hauser, Sakar Annam, Joey Hauser, um, Jamal Kane, and the others benefit. When you allow them to benefit, you're going to lose by double digits. You will lose by double digits. So Seton Hall, they'll put Quincy McKnight likely on Howard. They'll throw different bodies at him. But I don't get as concerned with Howard. Seton Hall's actually played Howard pretty well. Even in the game of Milwaukee, they made him work. You've got to cut off the other players that make up the supporting cast. Because when Marquette has them going, they're an Elite Eight type team. So once again, I agree that they, they had the confidence off that last game in Milwaukee where they kind of came up just short to maybe build sure. off of the fact that they can hang with them. But conversely, they have not had the same kind of success with Villanova recently. Obviously, all the games uh, at their place. And this year didn't build up much more confidence with the national watch game. The fact that Villanova is going to have a week off to prepare for us, psychologically, do we have a competitive disadvantage going to that Nova game? Sure. Absolutely you do, because if you give Jay Wright a week to prepare, it's become the Nick Saban type thing. If you give Nick a couple weeks to prepare, I know it didn't follow suit this year, but I'll always bet on Nick Saban. Uh, tough to go against Jay Wright on a week of preparation. But that's how things are going to go for Villanova. They, it's their bye. They'll have a week of prep. Who knows? The, the way Villanova has come and gone offensively, it's tough to know what you're going to get at times with the Wildcats. What I think Villanova has done in the last two games is they said, okay, on the offensive end of the floor, we don't know how we're going to get consistency. We got to buy in defensively. I asked Jay Wright this last week. I said, Jay, is it just a case of missed shots or what's going wrong with this team? And he said, John, it's, it's a bunch of isolated things. It's not getting back in transition defense after a three that goes off the heel. And it's basically like a long turnover. It's, it's not being ready with your assignments. It's, allowing the offensive struggles to dictate how you defend Villanova wiped that out. They wiped that out in the win over Marquette, you know, Marcus Howard got his, but they cut off everybody else. And then in the win over Butler, they held Butler to 24 second half points and nobody on Butler on Saturday had more than 11 points in the game. That's exceptional defense by the cats. So John, what's your prediction for the week? Do they split? Do they sweep? Or do they get swept? I think Seton Hall gets a game. I think Seton Hall gets a game. They're going to have the crowd behind them. This team is very emotionally based. Uh, they're at their best when their backs are against the wall and they're getting counted out. I'm not saying that one win will be enough because I think you've got to then get a Big East tournament win and could find yourself in Dayton. But I think Seton Hall wins a game this week. My gut tells me it's the Villanova game. Uh, I don't know why. I just I would say Villanova. I think Marquette poses more of a matchup problem for Seton Hall at this juncture just because Marquette's so complete offensively, guys, and Seton Hall's just not. Plus, Marquette's now angry after losing to Creighton and will come in so focused on maintaining that regular season title, or trying to at least. Now now we've got a tie, and Villanova potentially owns that tiebreaker, but you're going to get an angry Marquette team on Wednesday. That's that's not good for Seton Hall. Oh, okay, let me play devil's advocate here. So Marquette beats us. That now puts us 0-4 going into that Villanova game. Once again, going back to the psychological disadvantage, even though you feel like that's the better matchup, how do they then try to turn things around in such a short you know, Wednesday to Saturday type matchup, knowing once again it's big Villanova coming in? Well, you know your season's on the line. And you've got a head coach who is anti-emotional. I mean, Kevin Willard is not this type of guy who's Ed Cooley. That's just not who he is. He, he's going to have them prepared. He's going to game plan around it. And this team, I don't think mentally is off the handle whatsoever. I think they're heartbroken over Saturday's loss. But I think I, I just I like the Villanova matchup more. I also think this year in the Big East, you can assume nothing. DePaul just beat St. John's and Creighton went into Milwaukee and beat Marquette. So just when you think, oh, it should go this way. 
uh, it's gone the exact opposite way. So I, I would have a gut feeling that Seton Hall takes one, and I think the better chance of it comes against Villanova. John, we like to do this with our guests at the end of the interviews. We like to do something we call walk the plank. Five rapid-fire questions. We expect five rapid-fire answers. Are you ready for this, John? I'm ready. Okay, here goes. Number one, best game you've ever covered? 2016 Big East Championship game, uh, Seton Hall and Villanova. Now, that's the best Seton Hall game. Next to that, 2016 National Championship game, Villanova, North Carolina. Who is the best personality you've ever interviewed? Oh, that's such a good question. Uh, Charles Barkley. Chance to interview any college basketball player or coach of all time. Who is it? Bob Knight. Sports broadcaster whose work you admire most? Vern Lundquist. Grew up watching him. Absolutely love Vern. Best player you watched in all your years covering the Big East? Wow. Josh Hart. John Fanta, you've walked the plank. Congratulations. I'm in the water now. John, thanks so much for spending some time at the Omaha airport with us. We really appreciate it. Anything for the left coast pirates. That was John Fanta, everybody. And we're real appreciative for John spending some time, especially trying to get out of Omaha before the snow hits. But we really have to say a special thanks to someone who kind of brokered that uh, the interview altogether. Hall Dan, the proprietor of Rivals.com, the Seton Hall message board where you can talk about everything and anything about Seton Hall. He reached out, he offered an introduction, and he did us a solid. Hall Dan, thanks so much. You know, it really goes a long way to talk about the pirate community out there. And and John even said it in post-production with us that he was just really appreciative that we're trying to do something to talk about Seton Hall basketball and, and keep it fresh and, you know, just be passionate about what we're talking about. So once again, thanks to Dan for allowing us to talk to John and continue to make that happen. So if you have enjoyed this podcast, please listen to our previous podcasts, which include interviews with former walk-on John Yablonski, former WSOU color commentator Mike McEnany, and 1989 team manager Clark Holly. For Tom Chilkaharski, I am Mike Dizzy Deziri, and you have been listening to Left Coast Pirates. <laughs>